Welcome to episode 6 of Pod Canada. This is a podcast that explores Disney's lore, Canada, the strategies, the news, the headlines. My name is Matt DeMarco, aka Flake. I'm joined as always by my co-pilot here, Brendan Patrick. What's up, buddy? Yeah, well, I'm doing well, Flake, and even though you didn't ask, but what's up? Not much. I just want to say I'm super excited to talk about, super excited, super happy to be talking about the rules today. They were finally dropped. Thank you. So, no, I'm kidding. We're not talking about the rules. Those are coming at some point, hopefully in the near future. We're going to be talking about archetypes and identity. Um, and what do the colors represent? Because I think that with the with getting more spoilers, we can kind of start to discern what mechanics lie in what colors and also maybe a little bit of archetypes, right? In the individual colors, but also in the color combinations. But anyway, Flake, let's start, as always, with that Elsa icebreaker. Elsa? Do you want to build a snowman? All right, so the Elsa icebreaker this week is actually from a uh, close friend of mine. And I asked them, I said, you know what? I'm like, they always want to try to support me and what I do. And I said, here's a nice softball for you doofuses to just hit out of the park. I said, just give me something, a question Disney-related that you want us to explore. And I got a whole bunch of really stupid ones from, obviously, (laughs) my stupid friends. But this is the only one that I felt was safe enough to put up here. A lot mm-hmm. of it was like if these two fought to the death and had to like eat the other one's soul. I was like, we're not doing that. <laughs> so uh, by all means, please regale us with this question. Um, yeah, so it's from Titan Grey. Titan Grey says, who would you want to be a Disney character? Parents mix and match aloud. Flake, you're going to be you're gonna be going first. Oh, I am. Okay, so... I think what he means here is if you were to, if your parents were two different Disney characters, which ones would you want them to be? Honestly, my dad was very Mufasa-esque. It, he was very stern, very strict, very mm. loving, and also was kind of like the patriarch of, of my extended family, like took care of like the extended family. Uh, you know, luckily he's still around and obviously all that. I, I think that Mufasa is a good father figure. Uh, and when it comes to mother, um, I'm, I don't know, man. Like, I'm trying to think. It, it, I kind of want, like, a Baloo-style, you know, caring kind of <laughs> watch-over-you presence, but has fun and maybe, like, bends the rules a little bit. Maybe that's a good dynamic for me. Yeah, I think it's funny you equate your dad to uh, to Mufasa. Mine was more like Scar, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think for my dad, I'd probably go with Hades because I think that he'd just be a great a great father figure. Um, and then for the mom, definitely Mulan. Um, Mulan is just such a badass. I, I really like uh, the "I'll Make a Man Out of You" song from Mulan. It used to be my wrestling walkout song in high school because it's just I don't know. It's such a joke. <laughs> Before you go beat someone down, it's just like this Disney song. I don't it's know. also it's also quite a banger. What what year was this? I have to know. Uh, it's probably like 2011, 2010. Okay, so you're either coming out like it, while everyone else is coming out to like Harlem Shake and other mm-hmm. stuff, you're out there banging. I'll make a man yeah. out of you. It was more like everybody comes out to like Metallica and stuff like that, and then you got I'm, I'll make a man out of you, Mulan. The opponent's just like, what the? <laughs> yeah, there, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer becomes a boxer, and it's like while everybody else's entrance music is like this really aggressive, like I'm gonna tear you to shreds. His comes out, and it's like, why can't we be friends? <laughs> and it just makes me think of that. But did you win a lot? 
Uh, I don't know. I guess I won a little bit. I only wrestled for two years because I transferred schools after uh, after two years. I went to boarding school, and then I was on the sailing team. So a little bit of a switch there from wrestling wow. to sailing. Pardon me. <laughs> and then you were in the stock market like group or like the, the stock market club. And then what? Y- yachting? <laughs> uh, nah. Honestly, it wasn't. It wasn't like that preppy. It was just I went from Texas to a school in California, and they had. Like they randomly had a sailing team. I was like, I'm never going to have a chance to do this ever again in my life. So I did that, but it wasn't, it wasn't like I was on the East coast and like some cathedral and me and the, me and the lads were going out for a sail. Okay. I just want to make sure that this isn't the present premise of like another fresh Prince of Bel-Air reboot or something. Dude, if you, if you saw the boats we raced in, um, I, <laughs> I think you would, you would laugh. They're probably not what you're expecting. I, I just wondering now, like I picture like the, the sweater, like tied across like your, mm. your pink stripe horizontal blue and white shirt like yeah pretty much the opposite it was more like uh you know waterproof rain gear and a life jacket and a two-person fj which is like um yeah that's that's not as cool that's not not as cool not as cool and um yeah it was it was a freaking it was a good time though but i i really i haven't sailed since then well uh one day uh, you and not me because the ocean terrifies mm. me but ultimately oh, yeah yeah god it's like outer space man it's it's it scary forget it it's a different different element for sure uh all right so this week we're going to be talking about obviously uh color and color identity but before that we do have some significant headlines and i do want to sort of basically crack the egg on the most important one which was uh today actually a lot of people found this information which is today being the 5th of april a a wednesday people found that a game demo will be done at the game manufacturers association expo gamma expo uh which will be on 24th and 25th of april now you and i are going to be in baltimore i think that like later that Mm -hmm. week for the flesh and blood pro tour but this expo is essentially uh gonna happen at booth 325 where they're going to and i quote it says visit us at booth 325 to learn more about disney lorcana and our organized play program now here's what this what this sounds like to me brendan is that it says learn more about it my suspicion is that there's going to be a broader announcement prior to this maybe the weekend before because the 24th 25th of april is monday tuesday uh, and that's when the um the expo kind of launches I would suspect that maybe the the Friday before or the weekend before or maybe even the week before they they actually lay the seeds and release the rules mm-hmm. and that's why they say ask us more about it, uh, wherein people will come in with questions so they'll be prepared mm-hmm. in that regard. Does make sense with the ask us more. You know, what I think is particularly interesting is this tweet from Disney Lacana. We'll be discussing the details of our organized play program and rules very soon. It's just weird that like it's not weird, not in a bad way, but they keep bringing up organized play, and it seems like it's at the forefront of their core marketing pitch for the game. And we don't know anything about organized play right now. And I would say that for the most part, a lot of us assume that the organized play is going to be pretty local, nothing crazy, you know, definitely not flesh and blood, right? Nothing like that. But they keep putting this like, uh, you know, kind of right in front of our face as a way to pitch the game. I wonder if they're actually considering like a legit organized play program as a way to incentivize players to play this game more and maybe compete with some of the bigger games out there that are doing, that have robust organized play programs, you know, Magic the Gathering, obviously Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, Flesh and Blood, etc. And uh, that would be fantastic. Oh, that'd be great. If they came out and said, here's the whole thing, like the Flesh and Blood's actually launched, is going to be announcing their entire calendar year worth of events. If... Lorcana can kind of just like scoop that 
and say, hey, here's what we're doing. You know, the timing is a little aggressive on it, but I think this is something that everybody is waiting for. And I'm pretty sure, like, the conversations that you and I have had with potential sponsors for the podcast, with potential partners and, and moving forward, a lot of their interest, be it from a place perspective or a retailer perspective, a sponsorship perspective, a lot of that hinges on them, and I quote, well, we want to see what OP is, and then we'll decide how we want to get involved. So I think that Lorcana and Ravensburger have basically identified that this a lot of the success and marketing of the game comes from the competitive um, structure. I think the initial, like at least in the beginning, it does help a lot. Um, but but yeah, on the on that side, it would be it would be really really good. I do hope for it overall. I think that one thing right now about sort of the the time we're in this modern time this this new card game renaissance right this rehash of what happened to i think it's like 20 years ago in like the late 90s or a little bit more than 20 years where they had this this card game tcg surge and like all these bad games came out but there was just so many games to play and so many you know everybody was trying to get into the market it does seem like that's happening now and i think that would also mean that these games will you know, they're going to try to differentiate and they're going to try to compete. And I think if we have a bunch of new card games coming in, trying to compete on this organized play vector, it's just so good for us. Honestly, it's good for us sort of period because all these new games are going to come in. We're going to get to try a bunch of different things. You know, some are going to be duds, but ultimately we, the consumer get to have a lot of fun. Uh, but I wonder if this also extends out to organized play and we're going to see people be like, okay, flesh and blood is doing this whole thing. And you know, they've been successful, right? They were kind of grassroots from 2019 and look where they are now. We're going to follow suit and we're going to try to do it better. And uh, yeah, for people like me and you flake, that's best case scenario. That would be pretty damn awesome. Again, we're kind of still waiting with bated breath, but as it stands, uh, we will for sure know on April 24th and 25th from the gamma expo, uh, new cards as well, Brendan. Mm -hmm. So let's start off with the first one here. We got Cheshire Cat. It's a Storyborn 03. It cost three resources with the special symbol around it. Can't wait till I have a word for that. Um, and it says oh, the ability is lose something when this character is challenged and banished. Banish the challenging character. This card is really interesting. It's also green, and I think that that's emerald. But this is really, really interesting because it makes me wonder about how challenging works because obviously it's a very, very powerful ability, right? You drop your eight drop. If I can simply just run this thing into it and get rid of it, that's great. Like this card is very strong and borderline overpowered. Uh, maybe not so much in the early game, right? Because it needs something to be above three attack in order to banish it. Um, but I wonder how it works. Like if I'm if I'm declaring an attack and I am I the ch am I challenging with Cheshire Cat, a challenger eight drop, it kills it and now we banish. Or do you have to attack it, right? And or can I block? Like that's the thing where it's like the rules really come into like making this card good or not. But I think the Cheshire Cat is it looks like a potentially very, very, very powerful card. Yeah. So my my um, assessment of this is first of all, um, if this attacks something else, the game text is is null and void because it says when this is challenged, not doing yeah. the challenging. So my that, yeah. you have to mm -hmm. attack it. In which case, my other suspicion leads to the fact that uh, this card, there's going to be a quote-unquote like a taunt mechanic in this, which it currently mm -hmm. doesn't have. There's going to be an item, my guess is, that you can associate to the, or you can attach to the Cheshire Cat, which will lure 
or create a taunt type situation which will force units to attack into it now the power level on it seems incredible because it just it's, it trades directly with something else but i think that there's some odds and ends that are missing you need a way mm -hmm. to get that opposing character to challenge it and then it goes from there but for now uh i think that it's playing into what uh the emerald uh, abilities are going to be and we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more yeah, Emerald, honestly, by far, has had some of the most interesting cards for me, to be honest. I thought that they would they would occur in other colors, but uh, yeah, so far Emerald has been the coolest. This vernacular of challenged versus challenging and how that works in the actual combat system is one of the things I'm most interested to find out because that you really can't evaluate the actual power level of this card until you really understand how combat works. Nevertheless, the ability is unique from what we've seen so far and has the potential to be very strong. Next up is Goofy Daredevil. Uh, Goofy is coming in, I believe, for this is going to be Ruby. Ruby, it's a Dreamborn hero, 3-4 stat line, drops in for 5 with the uh, special ring of justice around the cost, I guess we'll call it. And it has the keyword, which I think has been on every single Ruby card we've seen, which is evasive. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's been any others. I'll have to check. But yeah, evasive, obviously, very much associated with Ruby here. Um, we've seen it on Mickey Mouse. We've seen it on some of the other red cards, I think Tigger as well. So a five, uh, a five resource, a five mana, three, four. I mean, it's interesting in particular with the stat line because we recently had another card spoiled actually um, called the Wardrobe, which is in Amethyst, I think, or purple. And the Wardrobe <clears throat> is also a three, four, but it costs three mana and it has no ability. So that ability that... Um, the ability that Goofy has here is valued at two and additional resources in the color Ruby, and I think that that is the most interesting thing about this card. I was about to say, and that's what I wanted to dig into a little bit as well, but I think we, we've already done a breakdown of keywords earlier on that we've known already, but evaluating what keywords are worth is super important, and that is the best, um, the best you know, kind of comparison that we can make is to the same stat line and cost, like the 3-4 the vanilla versus the three four with evasive two is what evasive is worth which frankly sounds like a lot in which case are evasive units going to be overpowered are they going to be a problem as it were perhaps you know again and the the trouble with paper-based games is that you have to get it right when it's printed there's no real clean way to turn the knobs and dials to to adjust something like you would in a digital platform so my thought is that maybe this started out as a four and people realized as, through the testing process, it's like, well, we either lower the stat line of Goofy or we up the cost on it. And I think that settling in on evasive being a two cost keyword might be part of that template that uh, feature design looks at. Yeah, I mean, I think with all of the tools that we've seen so far in Larkana, Evasive does look very powerful. Obviously, there's many, many, many cards that haven't been spoiled yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, Evasive, I think, is going to be one of those mechanics that's kind of more hit or miss. I don't know if it's going to be super great in like a mid-range deck, but uh, who knows because we haven't seen the rules yet. But it, it does look like Ruby is an aggressive, an aggressive-based color, but at the same time, has a lot of what we would actually call evasion. It just happens this, this one's called evasive. But evasion is the concept that this card is, you know, in some way, shape, or form harder to interact with than a normal card. 
Next up, another from Emerald, and this is Lady Tremaine. Uh, one five stat line, six costs. Uh, nothing around the, the hoop there. And the ability being, do it again. When you play this character, you may return an action card from your discard to your hand. Hey, recovering cards. That's a, This is a dangerous one, because um, obviously there's a loop if you can reanimate this card with the whatever action you get. Action is synonymous with spell, I believe. Let me go check here. Dragonfire. Yeah, so Dragonfire is an action, if you remember Dragonfire from when we talked about Maleficent. Dragonfire is a five-cost, no swirly, uh, action that Banish Chosen character. So you can recur Dragonfire with Lady Lady Tremaine. This card, for me, uh, Flake, I'm not gonna lie, and again, this is why um, Emerald has been my favorite color so far, actually, as we see more spoilers, like, this is the coolest card in the game for me. This is the potentially the most broken card. This is one of the better cards we've seen. The 1-5 stat line, obviously, it's not a proactive card. It's not a <laughs> not, not an attacking card, but this ability is strong. I will tell you that if there is one mechanic that breaks card games more than almost any other mechanic, it is recursion. You've seen that in Flesh and Blood. You've seen it in Magic Gathering plenty. This is such a dangerous ability, and I love everything about it. Well, there's cards that were printed recently in Flesh and Blood that give attack <laughs> recursion and just loads it up, and, and this is precisely it. Any time that you can circumvent deck-building rules, it becomes a valuable asset, and it becomes breakable. I mean, the reason why there are deck-building restrictions in card games is so that you don't load your deck up with 20 copies of just the most broken OP card. If you have a card that you might overpay, obviously a 1-5 stat line for 6 is kind of lame. But if you can use that to go ahead and recover a card that interacts and gets way above rate value with everything else you're doing, then a card like Lady Tremaine, which we don't really have a... We don't have a... Uh, what's it called? A, a rarity on these cards. Mm -hmm. So that those are usually tip off part of their power level as well. But ultimately, like you said, I mean... You've played enough card games in your life, and you do some. You like doing some freaky deaky stuff when it comes to this. This was a card when I saw it. I was like, "Yeah, Brendan's gonna love this card." <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Flesh and Blood specifically, in the first set, there was a card called Drone of Brutality, which, um, when you blocked with it or when you attacked with it, rather than going to a graveyard or going to the bottom of your deck, that's a bit more of a powerful ability than this at face value because Flesh and Blood is this sort of recursive deck game where you, you know, the cards you pitch, they come back, and you're cycling through your deck. Nevertheless. Um, you know, this card dropping on six and saying, getting, uh, get your best card and put it, draw your best card, right? That's ridiculous. Like that, that's a strong ability, but if that card also can recur Lady Tremaine and you can loop that in some way, get another level of advantage to do something in addition to that loop, then it's, it's broke. Like it has, I think so far this has the, 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 the highest chance of being broken than any other card we've seen. Yeah, and, and exactly. Especially if you're playing... If, if Fatigue is an option in this, and all you're doing is playing her, recovering the card that gets her, and then just creating this loop... Like, a 1-5 stat line is not scary until your opponent runs out of threats that can kill a 1-5 stat line and maintain pressure, right? So mm -hmm. that's... Um, that's uh, that's Lady Tremaine. So there we have it. The, the three latest, I believe, yeah. but... I do have a question. Yeah, there is another word here. So return an action card from your discard to your hand. So we would, we're would we also evaluating this card under the presumption that when you play a card, it goes to your discard and not to your banish zone or something like that, right? And that is an assumption because um, it's, it's actually not guaranteed. There could be some sort of scenario where 
you are discarding cards in order as a way to filter via like a mulligan at the beginning of the game. Maybe you draw two cards, discard one card every turn. There could be wacky mechanics in this game, and it could be after you play a spell, it actually goes to your banish zone or something like that. But for our evaluation of this card, we are assuming that, you know, I play Dragonfire. Um, I play Dragonfire, banish something, it goes to my discard. I play Lady Tremaine after that, recur it, then drag the fire again. So, yeah, th so there's there's two ways to approach this. Number one is that discard pile and banish zone are two separate things. The other is that, again, to keep things relatively wholesome, the term banish is re is replacing something like destroy or kill or, or whatnot. So when something's banished, does it go to the discard pile? Or mm -hmm. is there a separate pile called, like, a banish zone? In, in Lorcana, I would say... I would use so in a lot of games if I saw the word banish I would think this is like a separate zone separate from the, the graveyard or the discard pile but I think that Lorcana has chosen to use words like challenge and banish in order to get away from uh, graveyard yep. because it's too edgy <laughs> all right so the main topic of the podcast uh, this week is we have enough now to basically look at the six different colors uh, in Lorcana and start to discern a little bit of what their identity is. We've got three or four cards for each color, each doing something unique, but each having a little bit of the same thematic approach to what they want to do, and uh, that's what we're going to do on this episode, Brendan. So, the six colors as they are right now in Lorcana are Steel, Ruby, Emerald, Sapphire, Amber, and Amethyst. Now, uh, how do you want to do this? You just want to break them down like one by one? Yeah, let's. Uh, we can break them down one by one, and if we want to talk about any color pairs and uh, specifically, we can do that as well because maybe there's something where it's like, okay, these two look particularly, you know, well synergized. Um, starting off with steel, there was a card that was spoiled. I do want to talk about. I don't know if we talked about it yet. It's, it's Tinkerbell, Tinkerbell, Tiny Tactician, Dreamboard Ally, Ally. That's particularly interesting. Fairy. Um, it's a two-four cost three with the swirly re with the additional swirly around it, and the ability is battle plans tap, draw a card, then choose and discard a card. So some sort of card filtering engine on a three mana two-four body. So this is interesting because it can be strong, right? But I feel like you usually want this ability on something that is cheaper, but maybe the two four body is enough on like turn three that it's it's just like it's a plus side, right? It's a plus side to the two four. It also has one pip. Sorry, I forgot about that. Um, so Tinkerbell to me, and I think that this is like the common rarity. By the way, we do have the rarity on this. Tinkerbell to me looks like a looks like an okay card, right? It looks it doesn't look like anything special right now. Um, I'm not sure. It's not something I would immediately want to just slam into my deck, you know? Unless in Lorcana, it was really important to be able to uh, filter your hand like this, like draw a card, then choose discard a card. Oh, I mean, or you can just fill your graveyard with stuff, and or your discard pile with stuff true, that, true, you, true, that true, you may true. want to. I mean... And, and there you go. So, like, if we're playing the Lady Tremaine, let's say I... Let's say that the rules in Lorcana say that when I play a spell, it goes to my banish zone. Well, if you're playing Lady Tremaine with Tinkerbell, that's a way to get these action cards actually into your discard in order to reanimate them. Uh, besides that, there's uh, Hook and Gantu. Both of them are captains, which is interesting. There's a in Tinkerbell was part of the Peter Pan family of IP. Uh, but the the one keyword from all of these uh, is Challenger, which Hook has Challenger plus two, meaning that when he is challenged he gets plus two uh, attack value. 
Well, it says while challenging. Oh, sorry. Uh, while is it while challenging? Uh, yeah. That's my bad. Okay. It's all it's all good. So while challenging, um, I'm not sure if that is. Yeah, again, I'm not sure if that 100% only applies to when you're attacking, um, or if also when you're attacked. Because the vernacular the vernacular points to the the idea that you are either challenged when you're on defense or you're challenging, right? Um, so I guess we would assume from that uh, that. This means when you're attacking, you get plus two. So it actually looks like steel. Uh, I mean, something like Captain Hook is a, like this is an extremely aggressive card, right? The idea that you get more value when you use it aggressively rather than when it's, when it's on defense is even more of an aggressive mechanic than something like um, evasive that we saw on the the Ruby cards. Captain Hook has one pip, and Gantu here has two. Gantu we talked about a couple weeks ago gone to it this weird <laughs> this this sort of weird ability where he's an eight he's an eight mana drop um with the additional swirly but has this anti-aggro thing on it where it's under arrest characters with cost two or less can't challenge your characters we talked about this in the in the last pod but this ability is very powerful right but it's usually not something you're searching for on turn eight assuming that there's a linear linear mana progression from one to eight turn eight it's if you're playing against an aggro deck where this would be really important usually you're dead yeah um so you can take it from the approach that you know looking at gantu's text tinkerbell's text uh so tinkerbell's text for steel being draw a card then discard a card your objective with tinkerbell and again she's got a two four stat line it's a pretty healthy stat line it's a sticky stat line at that drop uh with four four defense as it were but the text for me signifies that steel wants to go long and it wants to hunt for cards for uh, to set up particular types of plays. Drawing cards, searching for what you need. Um, Gontu late game is basically, okay, we've got this far. Now I can drop Gontu, stop all the little stuff from being a pain in the ass. I can kind of lock down the board. And what uh, I, I see what you're saying regarding Hook, where Challenger plus two, meaning that when it attacks, it gets plus two. But it, it says, it says to me, it's, it's just a, a one-drop, that will trade up against your opponent's early stuff to stifle their early game development, trade up against bigger uh, bigger characters that they need for their strategy while you develop yours. You can drop this early and pick and choose how it trades up as a 3-2 into certain characters that your opponent is developing while you're looking to reestablish you know, your board. I don't think that Captain Hook is particularly looking to trade with another one drop. It wants to trade with a two or three drop in order to get extra value uh, and and threaten board neutrality more than threaten a win condition. Yeah, so it is it is just a value card. I think that Steel has the weakest color identity so far of everything that we've seen, at least from my sort of deduction. One thing I want to point out, now that I look at all the spoilers we've seen, this and this might not be true across the board, it does look like the three, the like the three defense, right? The the three butt is actually it occurs on lower cost cards where if you look at six cost cards like robin hood which is obviously it's six cost because it has other abilities it's a four it has a four butt um you'll see four and five you know all most higher cost cards do not have they're not x3s so it does look like you know you, you wouldn't really want captain hook to drop and clear a five drop it'd be too it'd be too much value so i think that they've strategically positioned a lot of these cards that um 
you know, three it can die to Captain Hook, you know, like does this card die to Captain Hook? Does it die to this this early this early low drop? Uh, or they just throw it at four or five and then it it sort of avoids this simple mechanic. If you look at all the spoilers, like even like scars is six a six cost, it's a five, four, et cetera, et cetera. So something yeah. I just noticed. Captain Hook right now trades with Corella, which is a two drop, trades with Elsa, which is a three drop. Uh Tinkerbell in the same category is a four is a three drop but has a four butt. And that doesn't trade with it. But again, if your goal is to maintain a, a, a favorable board state and sort of prolong the game to a late game win, win condition, then Tinkerbell wants to do that. That's why it might have it. So, uh, yeah, Steel really not giving too many clues. But from what I've seen so far, it's more so about late game win condition than anything else. And, and you know, keeping, yeah. keeping a, a neutral board state. Honestly, depending on if my assumption is correct that they strategically uh, increase the defense values of things above three in order to make them viable at a higher cost because a card like Captain Hook exists, I think that Captain Hook, depending how combat actually works in this game, is actually like, it could be a prohibitively powerful card, right? If you're dropping five drops that have three butts and they're cleared by this one drop, Captain Hook is one of the best cards in the game. Again, that's assuming a lot of things about combat um, and sort of how that works and with summoning sickness, etc. But I think that Captain Hook in terms of like steel cards, is the best card we've seen. All right, uh, so that would be steel. Ruby is the next one. I think that is the most solidified as to what the hell it wants to be. Um, Ruby got gives us Mickey Mouse, Tigger, and Goofy so far. Yeah, well, it also gives us Maleficent, Mulan. Uh, right, but you know the Goofy, Tigger, Mickey Mouse. Those ones are pretty straightforward, to be honest. Those are five, six, and eight drops respectively, and they all have evasive. That's all they have. They are evasive. The one thing that's really interesting is like Goofy, no pips. Tigger, no pips. Mickey, four pips. So Mickey looks more like a end game sort of win condition, while the others are ways to control the board. You know, with this with this evasive mechanic and not have them removed in sort of a traditional way. So it does look honestly I, I i don't know if i can call this aggressive i mean it looks aggressive ish but nothing even though these are evasive they're not even close to as aggressive as something like captain hook is um honestly the most interesting card in ruby is mulan uh, mulan imperial soldier storyborn hero princess four five five resource costs with the swirly it says lead by example during your turn whenever this character banishes another character in a challenge your other characters get plus one pip this turn and it has one pip inherently so mulan is the aggro card of ruby in my opinion so far it incentivizes you to go wide incentivizes you to be attacking to be, to be attacking other characters at that assuming that you know they're Maybe there's something else to attack or something else to be doing with their cards. This this incentivizes combat, right? This is the aggro card that we've seen so far. And the other thing about it is that it, it improves the rest of your board, Mulan does. And if everything else has evasive, it means that your opponents are having a tough time actually challenging them and getting them off the board. So it does synergize in Mulan in that respect, that if your cards are uninteractable by the board and you need actions to actually remove them or banish them, then they remain sticky. And in that case, it might be a situation where this Ruby is your race deck, as it were. It's the it's your very aggressive race to the finish line style deck because I'm going to load the board with evasive units that you're going to have trouble um, or have very restrictive you know, circumstances to get them off the board. Mulan hits the board. Everybody gets better. She might challenge something, eliminate something, 
everybody gets better and then you're that much closer to your end game because you've basically thrown caution to the wind and not and 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 chosen to ignore your opponent's board while you do your own thing honestly looking at steel and then going into ruby one thing that I'm pretty comfortable saying is that I, I think that Lorcana has strategically given us the spoilers that they have so far because these cards represent different ways to play in each respective color. Like Evasive is not necessarily a aggro card, like an aggro-oriented card. Mulan obviously is, like Mulan would be in your aggro go wide deck. And then you have like this top end card, Maleficent, which is one of the highest rarity cards we've seen so far. That is just a two for one, but on a nine drop. And, you know, there's not a lot of red. <laughs> Usually, if red is like the ultra aggro color, like these nine drops, like this kind of like big red is, you know, it doesn't really mesh with a lot of the other cards. So it's interesting. And I think we've gotten these cards in particular because they show us different things you can be doing in that color and almost wildly different at that. Like, I think that the deck that Maleficent would go into is wildly different from the deck Mulan would go into. I don't know the last time I played Magic where I played against like a red burn deck where I've seen anything that they've played that costs more than three. I, I honestly <laughs> can genuinely tell you outside of like some like crazy Rakdos list where they have an enchantment that does some banana stuff that costs like seven, but ultimately most burn decks or most aggressive lists usually pack things that are three or less. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's like there's like big red is the the only i think that's like the the version of that the version of the red deck that's bigger big red and maybe like red prison will play some like higher cost cards but i think that also stays pretty lean but yeah i mean for the most part in magic specifically this the color that would <laughs> be most representative of ruby or be most similar in terms of like the literal color is red and yeah it's usually just an aggro sort of yeah, does it have deck. does it have haste? Is it untargetable or unblockable? Yeah, I want it. Like, does it does it cost two and do three to face? Then yeah, I want it. Like, that's more or less mm -hmm. how it goes. All right, well, let's move on to my favorite color, which is emerald. So we already talked about Cheshire Cat. We already talked about Lady Tremaine, um, Aladdin. So Aladdin, he's okay, right? But there's something important about it. So Aladdin, uh, Prince Ali, storyborn storyborn hero, Prince two 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 resources with the swirly, and. Aladdin has ward, so opponents can't choose this character except by challenge. What's weird about this is like ward on a 2 2 is kind of like I would want ward on my bigger drop, right? Because I don't want it to get uh, dragon fired. Like if you're dragger, if you dragon fire my, my Aladdin, all good. Yeah, it's good. It, that's best case scenario for me. Um, so, but ward is preventing that, and it's kind of, it kind of doesn't matter. Um, so Aladdin as a two-two is kind of a is kind of a funny place for me. This is one of the weirdest cards we've seen so far. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it goes into, but another really interesting card for me is Cruella Deville, which is Storyborn villain one three two resources with the swirly and it says you'll be sorry when this character is challenged and banished. You may return chosen character to their player's hand uh, and it has one pip. So your Corella Deville is, ban uh, is is challenged and banished. Uh, you've looted your Lady Tremaine into your graveyard. Record you, you bring Tremaine back. Then you play Tremaine. You get Dragonfire back. You two, you again. You sort of one for one removal something like this is the this is the the coolest the coolest color. <laughs> like it just <laughs> is. This is. Like so far, this is where you can do the most things in, in Lorcana outside of combat. Yeah, and. Um... We, you also get the Cheshire Cat, which again is uh, 
what I've noticed about this is a lot of the stuff that you're presenting here makes for uncomfortable interactions where it's like, do I really want like like you're you're forcing your opponent to take an L on or take less value out of a trade that they would have otherwise made because like if you're trading into the Cheshire Cat, like you're get you're benefiting from it. Like a lot of this stuff seems like death rattle effects to the degree of you know, all right. Like, if you kill it early on, it might not be that bad. But like later on, it'll have implications. And like you said, Lady Tremaine bringing back an action card, uh, Corella Deville bringing back a character, uh, and then you have Aladdin with Ward. And and what this kind of tells me from from Emerald is, you know, I'm trying to like equate it to something else. But there there are always these lists, these types of things where playing playing the the normal way running down the standard line of procedure of of how you want to operate of like okay like i have a i have captain hook and they have an, a a one three i'm gonna kill the one three it makes sense but then that that sort of obvious line of decision making gets bungled by the fact that there's these uncomfortable ways like for instance aladdin like well i can't just drop an action to to kill aladdin not like you said not that you would but maybe aladdin's just a, a common draft fodder card for emerald you know like it's possible that it's just a two drop that you throw in there because there's no other options early on in the development I, it's, well, it's just... weird like compare aladdin with Corella deville i think they i think that this is so uh it's important to establish this so in flesh and blood <laughs> and i'm just gonna draw this parallel because i think it's a good one in flesh and blood as the rarity as the rarities go up in the card it does the the higher rarity cards are not necessarily more powerful in Larkana, I suspect that that will not be the case. I suspect the higher rarity cards will have a way of being actually more powerful than common cards. Because look, at we have two two drops with the literal same cost. They both have the extra swirly around it. We have Aladdin and Cruella Deville. Cruella Deville looks a lot more powerful than Aladdin, and it has a pip on it. We don't know what pips do yet, but we assume that they're related to the win condition. Like, I would want infinitely more Cruella Devilles in my deck than Aladdin's, for example. Oh, for sure. And and I, I think you're spot on in terms of the scaling of the power levels for rarity. Like you mentioned, if evasive, if like we don't have uh, Tigger's, um, or is it Tigger? No, Goofy's rarity level. But like you said, if you put her uh, put it up against the wardrobe, the wardrobe is coming in at how much is the wardrobe? Uh, okay, so there's no rarity on the wardrobe. But my suspicion is like. If if Goofy is costing two more with the same stat line to get evasion, I would have guessed that they're the same. Uh, they're going to be the same rarity. But if Goofy was like, for instance, if Goofy was like a, a rare or super rare or legendary, let's say, then it would be like a three drop with a three mm -hmm. four evasive. Like I think that they're scaling that in. I think that part of the balance mechanic in this is rarity, and who knows what that's going to mean for acquiring cards and 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 that kind of stuff and the and the you know the economy of the game but it's clear like you mentioned purely from the aladdin versus corolla deville comparison that rarity is factoring into the balance of the mm -hmm. design my biggest takeaways from emerald are first of all emerald has ward which i was not expecting so aladdin showed us that and then emerald is the color so far that has the most tools outside of combat um and yeah i mean that's kind of my takeaway from emerald is it it with the spoilers we have, it does. It looks less combat oriented than any other color we've seen so far, even sapphire, which is the blue color. Uh, so let's go on to sapphire because of that. Um, start off. I mean, looking at. Let me try to get my 
uh, Sapphire is particularly interesting because you have the shift mechanic, which also exists in Amber. Um, it looks like sh a shift only exists in Amber and Sapphire so far, and that's a particularly interesting mechanic. We had uh, we sort of speculated on what that is, how it's this like idea that you are now playing this on top of a cheaper version of itself that has a different name, and you're sort of cheating it out, you're ramping. Um, but looking at something like Scar, Scar is a Storeborn villain, five, four, six cost with the swirly round. It says Insidious Plot. When this, when this care, when you play this character, chosen oppo uh, opposing character gets minus five attack this turn. So what you're doing with Scar is you're playing Scar on six. You're finding something that has like a high attack and a relatively reasonable <laughs> defense that you can clear with something else. You neg its attack. You take your lower drop. You kill it and it survives like it's just you get value from that um which i guess that's uh, everything about blue or sorry sapphire to me is tempo so far tempo i think robin hood is a great example of tempo um it's a four four six cost with the swirly and says feed the poor when you play this character if an opponent has more cards in hand than you draw a card that is like quintessential tempo and then good shot during your turn this character gains evasive evasive all amount also existing in sapphire but, but conditionally um like, what are your thoughts about Sapphire? Is it is it <clears throat> is this is this blue? Is this blue in Lorcana or is Emerald blue? And is Sapphire just it's more tempo, right? Tempo and value, but a lot of it is also timing in terms of how this works. I mean, like you need to make sure that your scar drops in at the right time so you can take mm -hmm. full effect. And like the first thing that I thought about with the scar effect is like you said, it's like we need there's a big threat on the board. How do we get rid of it? Um, you know, so you drop it in and What's interesting is that that the insidious plot ability for Scar is going to be negated by things like Ward, right? Because Ward is going to protect you from, you know, Scar dropping in and saying, I cannot select Aladdin with this, or I cannot select another character that has mm, Ward. Yeah, choose. Yeah, the key word there, by the way, is choose. So uh, just to read off Ward, because I think the wording is really important for Ward. Opponents can't choose them except in a challenge. Right. So choose does include Scar's ability. Correct, and that says like chosen opposing character, so you can't choose those abilities. But what I'm what I'm looking at with with that with Robin Hood, uh, and I think what these cards are are just above rate or or value cards that have certain circumstances where they do good things. For instance, like you mentioned, Robin Hood. Um, during your turn, this character gains evasive. Sure, no problem. That's during your turn, which is interesting. Yeah, conditional when... on turns. I mean, Scar is the same thing where it's like this, you know, for this turn, this happens. And yeah. now Robin Hood is also for this turn, which we haven't seen on any other cards. Yeah, and it all, Robin Hood also says, you know, um, if an opponent has more cards than you at the end of your turn, or when you play this, you can draw a card. So conditional, conditional above rate stuff. But mm -hmm. a four for four for six seems okay. It's when those conditions are met that you get exceptional value out of them. I think that they're mm -hmm. just con conditional value cards. Whereas Aurora, however, it does have it does have the shift mechanic. It also gives all your characters ward, which is cool. And if we're looking at this, um, you know, ward is I think going to be I think ward is going to be a pretty important uh, uh, element where they're not just going to dish it out. I think maybe Aladdin as a two-two with ward. Maybe Ward is just really damn good because maybe the remainder of a lot of these characters we're going to see are going to have a lot of pick and choose and point and click uh, abilities. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, so I would venture to say that Robin Hood is like one of the. It's definitely it's it's a tempo ability, but it's one of the most aggressive abilities we've seen. 
I guess I guess you could differentiate aggression from tempo in the sense that aggression is very much focused on combat, where tempo would take advantage of this by also playing spells out of hand and playing items out of hand and then drawing the card. But this idea that your opponent has to have more cards than you, it's like if you're even somewhat close to a control deck, that's just never going to happen, or it, it just doesn't really happen. So I think Robin Hood's ability is particularly particularly interesting. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that really does fall into that sort of tempo archetype. I feel like this, I feel like that color, I think that, um, what is it, Sapphire? I think Sapphire might be one of the best cards to draft, or like colors mm -hmm. to draft potentially. Um, you know, when it comes to draft and draft strategy, oftentimes it's like, if you can just two for one your opponent or get go above rate on your cards, typically that's enough to, to win you games. And I feel like a lot of the other colors like evasion is a cool a cool mechanic no problem again i have no idea if draft is even going to be a viable yeah. format but what i'm thinking about here is typically if you're drafting stuff you want stuff that can just be good on its own that doesn't require a lot of bells and whistles and, and dominoes to line up for it to, to really pop off and something like scar is just a good card to have on its own you know like i wouldn't be surprised if scar turns out to be um you know one of the higher rarity cards in the game yeah all right flake let's move on to amber here so first card for amber which i think is the most interesting one is healing glow which is an action um and it costs one resource with the thing around it and it says remove up to two damage counters from chosen character oh flake this hurts my soul because it reminds me that they've chosen to go with damage <laughs> counters in Larkana, which is Oh, I just really hope that we don't have to turn our character sideways. We do, though. We do. That's the thing is, like, there are tap abilities. So I don't know if anybody's ever played with cards that have dice on them, but they become, like, you go from this amazing ergonomic experience of playing with physical cards to, like, this absolute pile of garbage because you've got dice on them. And now you're trying to turn it. The dice are falling off. And it's like, oh, sorry. Such I, a pet peeve of mine. No, I hear you on that. Like, and, and I get it. And one of the biggest criticisms, I think, from other games like Battle Spirit Saga is like, you know what, like the game's cool and all, but do you, dear lord, like what are these little pebbles, like these little dice, these little rocks? And again, like it's the same thing because at least with, I, I don't know how these counters are going to look or stack. My hope is that they are designed so that they can snugly fit on top of one another mm. so you can stack them where when they, they're not just like balancing. There's like something that connects them over the top so that oh. when you do tap a card, they don't go, and this is our business. This this could be a really wicked business opportunity where if we design the damage counters where they do slot into one another and they do fit snugly, so they don't bounce around and stuff like that. But like you said, there's going to be a lot of uh, creature combat and damage counting, wherein I think like it, it, you can see just by the box sets, it's like oh, it comes with twenty damage counters. It's like dear yeah. lord. In my, yeah, in my opinion, it ruins what makes physical card games so awesome, which is they just feel good to play. And that is a real thing. Like, I mean, if you, it's just, I think if you've looked at digital card games and the, the evolution and revolution of digital card games um, in recent history, it, you'd be surprised that anybody ever goes back to paper because it's harder to play, it's more expensive, and it's just like all this other logistical crap that makes it, you know, quote unquote, worse than a digital card game. But there's something so real about playing with these cards 
in your hands, sitting across from real people. And like, that's a great experience. And I think that when you add this crap on top of the card that slides around and is like dynamic and you're constantly trying to switch it and remember, like it takes the core design of Lacana, which is supposed to be approachable and modern, you know, better than what came before it. And it takes that and it, you know, it's the antithesis of this entire idea. So I'm, I'm very, very surprised. I just, maybe they, they, ex, ex, I just have to put my faith in them here, right? Like, cause I think this is, I think this is overwhelmingly all negative, right? I think it's all, all negative. Like there's almost no correct way to do this. So I'm going to put my faith in them and hope that they've done it correctly because they've chosen to put this in their game and you don't have to do that. There's been plenty of history and past card games that have taught us that we can evolve from this damage counter and millions of dice on things kind of uh, gameplay. Uh, I'll just be straight away with this. You know, part of the reason why I don't play something like Dash is because I don't want to, you know, in Flesh and Blood, is because I don't want to put counters and dice and mm. track that and stuff you don't even tap stuff in flesh and blood that's what's crazy it's like those permanents sit in one spot and they don't move right like if this thing is sitting on the board you're moving it around like whether it's left to right and you're tapping it the tap mechanic in particular sucks with dice dude yeah i agree i agree um playing magic playing i used to play selesnia uh tokens and they'd all get bigger they'd all get tokens they'd all get dice and eventually like you, you show up with your deck of of sixty plus sideboard, and then mm. you show up with a box of garbage, like you mentioned. Where it's like, okay, I got all my to, I got a stack of tokens. Like so, here's like some angel tokens, some soldier tokens, some this, some that. Uh, now this one gets a plus one counter. This one proliferates. This one does this. This one does this. And at the end of it, it's like, okay, I need to attack with like fourteen things. So I'm gonna like gingerly yeah. slide them forward <laughs> so the dice don't fall. And it's like, oh, does that represent two? uh zombies or is that yeah. zombie have a plus two plus two no no it's yeah. one zombie with a plus two it's a two two no no no. it's a two two zombie with a plus two plus two on it it's like tear your hair out kind of annoying i i fully agree with you where the more kind of peripheral garage sale crap that is thrown onto this the less appealing it is you know like it's the same reason why i never i don't know if you remember the board game 13 dead end drive um mm. Either way, it was it was a cool looking game that took about thirty minutes to set up because there were so many bells and whistles to the point where I never played it because I was like, screw this. Like it just yep. became cumbersome. There's a recent example of a game called Soulforge Fusion, which was a digital card game that became a physical card game recently through a Kickstarter. And because they were a digital card game, they had dynamic dynamic health values, dynamic attack values. Dynamic attack values are common, right? You know, it has a plus one, these have plus one for the turn, but dynamic health values are not. And so you would, and this is a this is a lane based game, by the way. So you only have five lanes. You can only have five things out, kind of. And you would end up with like you know a dice on your health, a dice on your attack, and it was changing dynamically. And you have these d freaking twenties on each thing. And I'll tell you that that game will fail in paper. It it it, it has. I I think that the game has not done well. I thought I thought the game was really good when I played it, and I think that the game is a failure because that mechanic sucks so much in paper. It's not good. It's bad. There's also some other things they brought from the digital digital card game into the physical that don't work in my opinion. But that experience in of itself, not good. D20s on my attack and health, not good. I mean, we're not going to be working on D20s in Lorcana, but 
yeah, we'll see. Let's get let's get into Amber because yeah. you, you said really healing glow and then and then you went on this old man rant. So go for yeah, it. Old man rant. Watch them like have like a very eloquent way of solving it too. Um, let's talk <laughs> about let's just talk about Stitch. So we see shift on a lot of cards in Sapphire. Stitch is a um, rock star, three five floodborne hero alien six cost with the swirly around it shift force and maybe you may pay four instead of six to put it on top of one of your characters named stitch our theory is that that would be a stitch that is different from the stitch it would be a lower cost stitch and now you're cheating it out and the ability is adoring fans when you play this when you play a character with cost two or less you may exert them which is tap them and draw a card so we have established that there is summoning sickness in this game so this is actually a total free roll um from what we understand I mean, there could be some more finicky stuff with combat and the rules to where you wouldn't want to exert something but it seems like if you have stitch on you play anything with cost two or less you're just going to draw a card effectively and it has three pips so stitch is strong stitch is one of the well honestly one of the strongest cards we've seen because it's this uh recurring draw card like it that's that's crazy freaking powerful especially if you have any sort of low to the ground strategy here i'm seeing the the one thing obviously that just beacons to me is like again stitch uh you've got um hades and healing glow i think that's all we know in terms of cards that have actually been revealed there's uh i believe there's moana who is also going to be an amber uh is it we're in amber now yeah amber uh, amber related card but shift shift is the most important element here and what shift and healing go says to me it's ramp and it's and it's maintaining big bodies on the board i think that this mm -hmm. is a going to be an, a very action heavy um set where you're basically rallying around major characters that get bigger and badder as they kind of progress mm -hmm. where you're basically building up these early game characters keeping them alive and healthy so that late game you can do some crazy stuff with them i think it's a ramp based um uh identity much like druid uh in mm -hmm. hearthstone druid in hearthstone is going to do a lot of protection elements early a lot of ramp mechanics early might give you the board but eventually will just purely outvalue you on stats later on so I also think that this is a weenie color. So weenie means like little bodies because stitch, right? Stitch means you play something cost two or less. Stitch, play card, draw a card. Strong. But let's go over to Hades, King of Olympus, six, seven, eight cost with no swirly around it, shift six. But Sinister's Plot, this character gets plus one pip for every other villain you have in play. So the more villains, the better, right? And that usually incentivizes us to be low cost, cheap cards that you can get onto the board and get them on in mass so i think this is also a weenie identity it could be and druid does tokens very well in uh, in mm -hmm. hearthstone as well this might be a similar thing it's like okay you've got like your build around your rally around major characters that you're going to be ramping up and in the meantime you throw a lot of fodder onto the board and those fodders might just be like one ones or one twos that are generated very that via various things we might see an item that hits onto the board that every time you shift create two blah blahs or god knows what they are um and then from that point onward then those weenies as you put them those tokens become better based off of stitch's ability hades ability but the mm -hmm. centerpiece is not going to be the weenies it's going to be these these major engine pieces that are the focal points and that's where cards like healing glow and protecting those the the non-expendable beings on the board is going to be uh is going to be clutch yeah well let's head to our final color here which is amethyst um purple or black 
This one's a this one's an interesting one for me, to be honest. So first off, let's talk about the pocket watch. The pocket watch is an item. This is White Rabbit's pocket watch. Costs three resources. Has a swirl around. It says, "I'm late. Tap one. Pl- tap pay one resource." I'm assuming that's what that is. Uh, chosen character gains rush this turn. Rush means they can challenge the turn they're played. So this 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 says there is summoning sickness in the game. When you play things, they cannot immediately challenge other characters which is really important. Like it makes something like Captain Hook, like way worse, for example. Um, but we thought because of Stitch's ability that surely there was no summoning sickness because it would make Stitch's ability effectively a, what seems like a free roll. There could be additional nuances in the rules that make that not true. But White Rabbit's Pocket Watch was a surprise for us. And yeah, Rush. Rush, paying four resources to just give one thing Rush. Obviously, it's one everything every time after that. Is it good? I don't know. I don't know if the pocket watch is good, but I'll tell you what might be good is the magic mirror, which is another item, two items in Amethyst here. I don't think we've seen item in anything else. And the magic mirror costs two resources with no swirly around. It says speak, cap, four resources, pay four resources, draw a card. So that's expensive. I mean, that's six six resources for a card off the bat and then four for future ones. It's really expensive, but what matters is less about how much that is because you wouldn't just slot this into your aggro deck or your mid-range deck. This would likely go in your control deck and it becomes a late-game engine to get sort of a progressive amount of advantage over your opponent. I'm seeing this... Co- First of all, what I think about uh, about Rush... Rush says they can challenge uh, the turn they're played. It doesn't mean that they can't exert. Uh, I think that exerting and challenging are going to be two different things because what Stitch says is... When you play a character with two or less, you may exert them to draw a card. I think exertion and rush to challenge mm-hmm. are two different things. So I think rush allows the character itself to challenge, but it always had the ability to exert. I think that that might be part of it. Do you think when I challenge that it, when I challenge something, does it exert my card? Yes, by default. Okay, so that that's what that's the assumption I was going under too, is right. So if I take my card and I challenge you, I tap it. So it's like attacking and magic, and it tapping in this game is called exerting so yeah that's what i was assuming and then we have elsa elsa is a three drop two three uh with the freeze it's which is basically tap it to exert opposing character it's basically like i'm out you're out it, you're you're looking to slow down the game nullify their biggest threat with one of your mid-range to low tier mm-hmm. threats it's just yep. kind of just uh slowing down the game and you know can she then be challenged? Yeah, but you're going to have to protect her in a certain way. And maybe the way to protect her is with something like the Pocket Watch where Elsa might be locking down some of the bigger threats and then you put in other cards in there to go ahead and like your opponent says, okay, well, I'm going to drop a hook, let's say, to take out the Elsa. Well, the hook can't challenge because it doesn't have rush, but you know what? I'm going to drop something that has a that is a three or two attack stat line. I'm going to give it rush. I'm going to take out whatever you had that was going to deal with Elsa. So that might be one of the scenarios I'm thinking. I cannot put my finger on what uh, Amethyst is going to be, but the Mm. best clues is Magic Mirror alluding to a late game, more control-oriented game style, and items, which are usually associated with things like that, a lot of setup, a lot of uh, interaction. 
Elsa is also a control card, to be honest. Like, Elsa is a very, very good card. It's kind of a tempo card at the same time, but I think this is a powerful control card. Because uh, just tapping down your opponents, maybe four, five, six, seven, eight, nine drop with your three drop. Anybody that's played a low powered magic set should know that this ability is powerful. It's just not powerful when things are powerful enough to sort of go over the top of this ability. I think in an alpha set, this is potentially a really, really good card. Um, because your Elsa can just be like, okay, you can play your, your top end high rarity card. I don't care. Like, I'm just going to tap it with my three drop because it comes in, has something to so just be go to my turn. I tap it, I tap it down. I tap down infinitely as long as I keep Elsa alive. Um, so I think Elsa is really powerful. It was one of my favorite cards that we saw initially. And it screams to me in this color that this color is control. Rush is not synonymous with that whatsoever. But if we're talking about a combat based game where you're not attacking a life total, I mean, board control is control. Like, you need to have board control in order to have control. So, in that sense, I guess Rush makes Rush does make a bit more sense. Um, last one here is Olaf, Friendly Snowman, Storyborn Ally. One, three, one cost with the resource around it. No text, and it has a pip. Has Olaf always had a pip? I think so. I think it always had. I could be wrong, but I will have to go look at, like, the earlier... I know that this is, like, you always... Harold, this card is like the most fascinating one uh, earlier. I thought on. it was because it didn't have a pip. So if you zoom in to like on lorkania.com, which is where I'm looking at these spoilers, you can also see that it looks like the pip was added like retroactively. It's like a different color, mm -hmm. um, like the, the text box. So yeah, I'm going to have to go look back because Olaf was confusing to me as a 1 3 with no pip, I think. Maybe I could just be off my rocker here. But um, yeah, the ally. Ally with a pip is interesting. I think the rest of the allies we've seen don't have pips. Like, the wardrobe doesn't have a pip. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Olaf, 1-3 with a pip seems... 1-3 are control numbers, you know? that's yeah, for sure. 1-3 is a control number as a 1-drop. It's meant to sort of trade with a 2-1. Like, that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to 2-for-1 early game or to just soak up damage uh, earlier on to keep yourself healthy. It's just been the the way to go in most card games the one three one drop is basically signifies all right i'm i would like to see turn five plus like that's what mm -hmm. usually those what that signifies so uh looks to me like you're right amethyst is, is leaning very control heavy and then that leads me to ask you this question brendan mm -hmm. what based on what we know you know with the color identities as we've kind of devised them what pairing He's kind of giving you the most mojo here. <laughs> so funny because I was literally about to ask you the same question. So the, <laughs> the pairing that gives me the most mojo right now is definitely Emerald Amethyst. Um, actually, it's kind of like it's kind of like Emerald anything. I think Emerald for me is by far the most interesting uh, color right now. Or this word is obviously not color, but you know what I mean. Emerald, really, really cool. I, I like Sapphire. I think the Sapphire could be awesome as well, but. Yeah, if we're looking at like a the control deck <laughs> with the few cards we have spoiled that you could potentially build, I mean it's Amethyst Emerald for sure. But uh, yeah, for me it's just it's Emerald, and I'll throw anything else in there. But yeah, that that color for is the coolest by far to me. What about you, Flake? You got any color identities uh, to pair that speaks to you? Uh like things for me that always just make me happy are finding high value exchanges based mm. off of very you know, very uh, specific circumstances. That's why like, a card like Scar, to me, is really attractive. A card like Robin Hood. Like, all of Sapphire so far has really spoken to me, but I'm, I really like Limited, and these are all, mm -hmm. like, limited heroes for me. Like, these are all really strong limited cards, that, in my opinion. So I'm thinking a card like Scar, Robin Hood, like, the best 
feelings for me when I'm playing a game is when my opponent, when I sort of set up the board state where the card I'm going to play is just going to go leagues ahead of what the printed value is, you know? And for me, yeah. a card like Scar is just like, it's a like cool card. Uh, you know, I sacked a, a low-tier unit into it to bring it into a digestible level because I'm going to now Scar it and then kill it with this, and now I have a really, really powerful board state. So uh, I, I can tell you that ruby is probably the color i'm gonna like the mo uh, the least <laughs> out of uh, all of them yeah um makes sense why you play old him in flesh and blood I just love doing that two card eight off the tunic huh mm. uh, oh yeah but yeah i think i think emerald might be up your alley as well i mean emerald is kind of breaking these like basic tenets of the game that we've seen so far uh it has the highest possibility of being broken but i also have an affinity for sapphire uh, i think i think robin hood is my favorite color for looking at sapphire uh but I don't know if it slots into the deck that I want to play. I think there's a value-oriented tempo deck. I mean, I could I could be convinced to uh, you know step away from my control ways to to play that deck because those are super fun. All right, uh, so there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Those are the six colors of Lorcana and some of our best uh, guesses as to what those color identities, those ideologies, are going to be. We've got a mailbag. Coming up, Spill Dink, we've got some questions from the community. We're going to hit those right now. Mm -hmm. All right, so the first one here is going to be Citizens of Lorcana at COF Lorcana on Twitter. And they say, as you look at the currently revealed cards, which card interactions are looking the strongest so far? So, yeah, I think we answered that one a little bit just inherently. For me, I'll just revisit. It is Lady Tremaine with some sort of overpowered action ability. I guess right now it would be Banefire. That loop is just kind of one way right now, but I mean, if you're looking at Krilla Deville, uh, so you play Banefire, um, Dragonfire. Sorry, so yeah, I know. I always do that, right? <laughs> so you play, you play Dragonfire. Um, you banish something, then you play Lady Tremaine. You recur it. You play Dragonfire again. Then you play, you have Krilla Deville on the board. Krilla Deville recurs Lady Tremaine. Lady Tremaine recurs Dragonfire again. That's three Dragonfire. So for me, that's the that's the most interesting thing I've seen so far. I like it. I mean, interactions uh, looking the strongest so far. It's hard to argue against bringing back powerful and OP cards. Like, that's just mm -hmm. usually what drives people insane when somebody can figure out a nice little potentially infinite loop of, of just getting access to your strongest cards and then just driving your opponent nuts. Uh, I think that's probably where it's going to be again our pool of cards are very limited so the interactions and the combos that we're seeing that are kind of materializing now they look powerful because they're the only kind of combos that we're seeing so uh my my strongest interaction right now is going to be when my opponent have is happy to drop a, a big thing and then i scar it and kill it that's going to be my <laughs> favorite interaction what about you dragon fire it and kill it it's, oh, you it's could. It's cheaper, isn't it? Isn't yeah, but, it cheaper? That, but then you don't. Then you don't have a lion on the board. You don't have a body. Yeah, yeah. you don't have the body. All right, um, screw it. I, Maleficent. There you go. That's what I want. <laughs> Maleficenting my opponent's Maleficent is going to be my absolute favorite thing to do. Maleficent is really like if you get to play that card consistently, it'll be definitely fun to two for one <laughs> for oh, sure. Right, there's going to be some so many mad people when that happens. I just don't think we're. I don't know how Thor get into nine. Um, okay. Next up question is from Lorcana Germany, at Lorcana Germany on Twitter. They say, do you think there will be colorless cards in Disney Lorcana? I'm thinking of staples that you can play in any deck. For example, uh, to work around Red's Evasive, pull the shift mechanic, push the shift mechanic, or get card advantage. 
This is a really interesting question of whether or not there will be colorless cards in Larkana. I actually haven't thought about it yet, to be honest. Like, what do you think? That really kind of skirted me on my evaluation of the game, frankly, because it, colorless cards uh, are present in basically every card. Most card games I play yep. have an element where there's a generic color, a neutral color, or a colorless color. Uh, Gwent has it. Flesh and Blood has it. Um, Magic has it, obviously. So why doesn't Disney Lorcana have it? I think that it's maybe something that they're not that is on the back burner. Um, I if if nothing is announced for their alpha set for colorless cards, that's fine. I'm okay with mm -hmm. that. But it doesn't mean that they'll never do it. I would. I, there's nothing stopping them from doing it. There's there, yeah. there's nothing. I think. <laughs> Well, Depends on what the resource system is. <laughs> well, I suppose so. I mean, like, I get it. But from what everything I see now, there's nothing for them to say, like, uh, okay, well, we can just print a card that has no color affiliation that can go in every every potential deck. And that's that's perfectly fine. Now, the history of cards like that typically have been that neutral or generic or colorless cards are usually more expensive. Uh, like, a 2-2 a two -two for 1 um, in magic might be a green card but a 2-2 in colorless is always a two drop in with no with no other flavor in magic let's say so uh, for colorless in magic so i think that if they do it they might have to sort of balance it in that way of making them a little more expensive than the going rate is purely because they can fit into so many different decks but the danger of printing cards like this is that the balance system becomes very difficult and that's mm. what they're going to have to sort of circumvent so I would argue the opposite. I would argue that if you don't print colorless cards, that the balance is actually harder, especially with the mechanics that we've seen so far in Lorcana. So one of the worst feelings in a card game for me is when you have really, really bad polarizing matchups. Matchups where you just like you're gonna basically you match into this person, and you know from seeing their color identity at the beginning you're like okay i can't win because i have no way to deal with evasive my deck just can't deal with evasive there's no card i can put into my deck i'm let's say i'm an emerald player i just play emerald amethyst there's no card that can go into my emerald amethyst deck that can deal with the evasive cards and i think that that sucks it's actually in my opinion it's the worst feeling at card games is when you simply just don't have the tools and you you didn't have the ability to have the tools either when you were deck building so it's a reason why I like colorless cards is because if you're looking at mechanics that are evasive, sorry, that have evasion, like evasive, um, or like ward, things like this, I think it's helpful to even if you have a overcosted sort of, you know, somewhat bad rate on a card, you do have a way to deal with it, and it can exist in either your sideboard or maybe maybe you can just build it into your deck because you know you're going to expect a lot of red decks. But you still, despite expecting a lot of red decks, want to play Emerald Amethyst, which doesn't have any traditional ways to deal with deal with eva uh, evasive. I think they'll do it. I I think they do. I I don't think this set will have it, but I think Colorless is going to be a thing eventually. I mean, it might not be this year. It might not be in the next two or three years. But it's definitely design space that's there to be explored. One of the funniest thing about colorless for me and Lorcana is that they already used gray. So oh. like what? <laughs> so they already like there's what what way are they going to denote colorless cards? They could do a lot of things, but it is funny because they used gray, which I mean, almost in, in most games does represent colors. Obviously, they could change the resource symbol a little bit at the top of the card, and they can be played in any deck. So many different ways, but um, yeah. Well, they could just do like a full black palette on, like give it a full black palette kind of color yeah. scheme, which 
again would look weird with the frame it actually might look great with the frame frankly uh it, uh, yeah but you're right because steel is taking the place of what generic would typically otherwise be and and mm -hmm. it's funny because in in flesh and blood that would probably be amber like the color amber looks like the what the neutral cards would otherwise mm -hmm. be so who knows man um i, I suspect excuse me i suspect that we would have probably seen one already Maybe. I think they're pulling some punches on us, uh, but once we get some gameplay, we're going to be able to do a lot. Hopefully, with the rules, hopefully by the next time we have an episode, we have the rules, because we will have a... As soon as we have the rules, we can honestly reverse engineer obviously, we'll have the rules, so we know the game, but we can reverse engineer a lot of the potential cards. We can understand the value of a card. Like, there's so much we can break down as soon as we understand how combat works and how these pips work and how winning the game works. Because right now, that's the reason it's all guessing. Like, as soon as you have that foundation, you can effectively just kind of, like, guess, but really intelligently guess and create the set. Like, you can just go create cards and create the set because you understand how they value mechanics. Oh, you know what I'm excited for? As soon as the rules drop, it's like, here are our top five most impactful cards of the set. Yeah. Or here are the, the top five cards that you you need to have. Like, all of those lists and evaluations that come from it, right now, all the variables are floating in the air, and you're just missing one. And, like, once that is slotted in, everything starts to fall into place, and you can parse out all the value of all the cards. Because right now, Aladdin as a 2-2 with Lord looks garbage. It, it looks pretty weak. But who knows? You, who knows? Maybe this whole game, maybe there's like one or two actions per color. Maybe removal is incredibly difficult to find and come across. Or maybe it's super common, wherein Ward mm -hmm. is really strong because it's like removal out of hand is like super common. But we don't know. And we're going to find out soon, I hope. Allegedly. Alle allegedly. Uh, well, there you have it, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for submitting your questions to Spilled Ink as well as the Elsa Icebreaker. This has been episode six of Podcana. And uh, as always, you can find uh, find us on Twitter at Podcana. We're on Spotify. We're on YouTube. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts soon, I think. I'll work on that. Uh, and apart from that, you can catch me on Twitter at WatchFlake. And Brendan is at Brendan APG also on Twitter. Any uh, parting shots there, buddy, before we call it a day? Just release the rules. Yeah, know? man. Re release the rules. I feel like I have this feeling like I may have tickled Disney Lorcana the wrong way. Like everybody gets Disney Lorcana in their tweets and their replies and everything. Mm -hmm. And we are just like these off. If anybody's tickled them the wrong way, it's me because there's probably maybe some senior game designer sitting in the back is like, oh my god, I love my damage counter system. Listen to our podcast <laughs> once, and I'm like, the worst thing you could possibly do is. <laughs> I, this is where I differentiate myself, and I say, you can send me all the good stuff and tweet at me and, and tell me all the stuff. I won't even share them with Brendan until I have to. So uh, I'm the good kid in this good cop, bad cop situation. Mm -hmm. You're the Definitely. bad cop. That's how you're going to be. But it's fair. It's fair criticism. We're not looking we want this game to succeed if we're criticizing it it's elements that we think might be detrimental to its success but we don't know what that is so give us the rules and we'll tell you <laughs> i don't know what else to say all right that's it that's all we will see you next week on podcast